Well, I invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're continuing our series through the book of Daniel, and I've found it encouraging and edifying. I hope you all have again week to week. I know it's a tougher road to hoe to read through some of these little bit uh, longer passages of Scripture, but goodness, Daniel's probably one of the most interesting and engaging books of the Bible. So I know as we read through those today, we're going to skip some of the verses in there, but I hope that we'll come with ears ready to hear and minds ready to engage. And, and if not, we'll be praying for the Lord to give us that as we even dive into this sermon time. So we're going to take a look again at this, uh, this passage. There's another dream here. We saw some dreams earlier in the book of Daniel, and it's interesting to see the things that are similar. Uh, both of the dreams, this one and the one back in chapter 2, speak to Nebuchadnezzar about the uh, power that he sees that he has and his earthly power, and they also remind us that God's the one who has ultimate power over all of us, even the greatest among us. So they're similar in that sense, what we saw in the earlier dream and this one in chapter four, but they're different as well. We're going to see today that this dream is much more personal. The earlier one was general about a number of the different kingdoms of the world and what would happen with them. This one's very personal, related specifically to Nebuchadnezzar and what's going to happen to him. And it also points to a powerful opportunity for repentance for Nebuchadnezzar to come and to actually know the Lord in a personal way. And as we read these verses, I want you to ask yourself then a couple of questions, because we've said already each week that we don't want to just look at Nebuchadnezzar in particular as some great king that's out there in some long time ago that has nothing whatsoever to do with you and me. The scriptures are inviting us actually to see elements of ourself in him. So when we read and we see his pride, it's an invitation to ask ourselves, what does it say to, to me about my propensity to pridefulness? What does it say in these verses about God's response to pride? How does God handle that when we're prideful and think we're self-sufficient? What does it say about the blessings of humility, of, of really getting low and seeing what God can do when we get low? And how is all of this ultimately pointing forward to fulfillment in Christ. So read along with me. We'll start in verse 1 of Daniel. Daniel's kind of a little bit past the middle of your Bible. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the minor prophets, or you can look it up in your digital uh, app if you want to. And verse 4, is that even a word anymore? Digital? I don't know why I keep using that word. It seems like a technical word, but technology. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is an interesting chapter as well because Nebuchadnezzar actually is in the first person in certain places of it, which is, which is intriguing. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So this is an announcement for everybody. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's got a routine here when he's confused. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the uh, Chaldeans, the astrologers came in and I told them, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down. So this is an additional part of, of the dream. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let them be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And a couple more verses here. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of the kingdom were not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a little while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies." Jump down with me to verse 26, because Daniel essentially repeats the dream as it's been shared already. It says there, and as I was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you, acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be the lengthening of your prosperity. Okay, so there's an opportunity here for Nebuchadnezzar. Read with me just the last seven verses here. All this came upon the king. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built, by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from a man, men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's essentially what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And then it tells us in verse 34 of his spiritual awakening of some sort. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. Think of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to heaven where my help comes from. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my, of the, of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Let's pray together. Father, this is uh, quite an event that took place so many years ago and that we've got the great privilege of being able to read about and to seek to apply to our lives today. It's a long passage, Lord, with a lot of truth in it for us to receive. So help us each one today by the working of you, Holy Spirit, to take away what you desire for us too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for more than 600 years, the Habsburg family controlled political power in a good bit of Europe. When Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria died in 1916, some of you may have heard this before, he had uh, one of the greatest and most extravagant funerals. A finely dressed processional of dignitaries made their way uh, toward the uh, Capuchin Monastery in Vienna, the home of the Habsburg family tomb with uh, a funeral procession coming alongside of them, all dressed in their finest. And they approached the a monastery, and the archbishop of Vienna who stood behind the main door. So they were outside knocking as he stood inside. The leader of the funeral procession said, open. Archbishop responded back and said, who goes there? The leader of the procession said, we bear the remains of his imperial majesty, Franz Joseph I, emperor of Austria, king of Hungary, defender of the faith, prince of Bohemia and Moravia, grand duke of Lombardy, etc., etc., listing off all 37 of his official titles. The archbishop waited patiently and then replied simply, we do not know him. Who goes there? The procession leader spoke again with another elaborate but somewhat more abbreviated explanation of who was outside the door. And then again, the cardinal said, we don't know him. Who goes there? 
Finally, the leader said simply, we bear the body of Franz Joseph, our brother, a sinner like us all. With that, the archbishop opened the doors and they were allowed to come in. So we think about these verses today, I want us again to be reminded that it's an invitation for us to think about ourselves and our propensity to be and to think and to desire like Nebuchadnezzar does in these verses. And it's a reminder as we look, if you want to, in your sermon notes section today in the back of your worship guide, you might want to look at it today because there's a couple of quotes there that hopefully we'll get some time to, to talk about. But the main idea is this for us today. Since God, the God, the Most High, as this passage often calls Him, is due all glory, He rightly humbles those who try to steal His glory. Now, before you try to kind of get out from under what this passage might be saying. Let me say first and foremost up here, I'm a glory thief. I like to have glory for me in various areas and various ways of my life. Maybe you'd be willing to admit if you look at your heart of hearts and the things you pursue that you're a glory thief as well or tend to be. It's interesting how the gospel of what Christ does, and we're going to talk a little bit more of that at the very end of the message, but it's interesting how the gospel helps us with this. I think it was A.A. Hodge, maybe, who said this. He says, the gospel exalts a man without inflating him, and it humbles a man without degrading him. Exalts a man without inflating him. It, it tells us we actually can have glory, glory that comes from God and it's gifted to us. And that we actually have that glory even just as we're being made in the image of God. And that we're invited to reflect glory. So there is glory for us to, to enjoy. But it's glory that comes from God. So we are exalted without being inflated and we're humbled by the Bible but without being brought so low that we're meaningless or purposeless. The Lord wants to engage with Nebuchadnezzar, right? He wants Nebuchadnezzar to come and say, you're the most high God. I've got no hope except for you. He wants us to say the same thing each and every day and each and every moment of each and every day. So as we think about this idea of pride today and we think about glory, think about humility, I think there's some questions for us to, to consider uh, where, where do we see that pride entering into our lives? Maybe it's that tendency that we've all got at points to trust in our own understanding and not so much in what the Word of God says to us about what we should believe, about what we should do, about how we should think. Maybe it's that tendency to follow the path that I want to follow instead of that path that I know the Lord's actually leading me to follow. Maybe it's just that propensity we've all got to seek our own exaltation in our own way and in our own selves instead of finding our exaltation by coming to the Lord in humility and letting him lift us up. 
those passages got a lot to say about all of these things. Take a look first at Nebuchadnezzar and what we can learn from him. First thing I want you to look at actually is verse 26 and 27, if you turn there. And, and it's interesting because there's this dream and there's this even like interpreter of the dream. And then there's Daniel repeating the dream. And it's very clear that the dream's serious, that these are actual realities that are going to happen. And yet at the same time, we're reminded, verse 26, that God's working out his sovereign will and purpose, but we're also invited as responsible agents in the world to, to participate. So there's opportunity indicated here. It says, and as it was commanded, and as it was commanded to leave the stump, the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So from the time you acknowledge that you're not the real king of the universe, Nebuchadnezzar, then, then things will start to, to develop and improve. And it goes on in verse 7. He says, Oh, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see that? So God's word's true and, and happening. And at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar's invited, Hey, take the opportunity to turn to me. Take the opportunity to humble yourself. Take the opportunity to receive grace and mercy. I'm delighted to give it. And we see that there off the bat. The second thing we see about Nebuchadnezzar is that he's got a real, uh, he's got a real bent towards like avoiding the obvious, avoiding the hard truth. We do the same thing, don't we? You know, someone tells us something that we don't want to hear. Uh, maybe you have that meeting with your financial planner and you know they're going to, it's kind of like going to the dentist, you know, they're going to tell you, you need to do this and you need to do that. You know, you haven't been doing it. And you, so you avoid that meeting with them or their, the call that they give to you to get together and talk, even though you know that you need to probably sit down and talk with that person. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of the same way that in this case, in chapter four, the dream is, is got its own built-in interpreter, right? These, these beings that come and tell them what it's about basically. And yet he doesn't want to hear it. He could probably understand it just himself. He, he gets all these other magicians and interpreters together, and they can't seem to figure it out. I'm not sure exactly why. Daniel comes in and basically tells them the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar had already told Daniel. So it's just a reminder to me that one of the things we do when God's wanting to humble us, wanting us to hear from him and receive is we just, we just dodge. We just try to move out of the way. Let me see if I can avoid what that Bible passage says to me. Let me see if I can apply it to someone else instead of apply it to myself. Maybe we look around and we see the godly example of other people around us, and we know that that's, that's a pathway we ought to be on, but we, we kind of avoid being around them. We sort of put, the, or put them in a holier-than-thou category so we don't have to apply it to ourselves. Maybe we've got the the witness of our own heart and conscience that's convicting us about something in our lives. And we just stuff that on down in there. I don't want to hear that. Be quiet <laughs> voice inside my head. Uh, maybe even as we saw in the whole sermon series we did on struggles, maybe God's allowing some difficulty in our lives in certain places. And he's, he's got a message for us to hear from it. Maybe it's not our fault at all. Maybe we brought it upon ourselves, but he's speaking to us. And boy, we, we don't like to hear it, right? We like to push it off, get somebody else to, can you tell me what this means? Can you tell me what this means? Can you tell me what this means? When all we're really doing is saying, I don't want to hear it. 
I don't want to hear it. So sometimes we just need to listen to what God's saying. You know, verse uh, in, a, in Luke that helps us with this, this is because it's easy to kind of think these things are just New Testament things for this King Nebuchadnezzar. So let me show you that these aren't just distant realities. Verse or chapter 12 of Luke, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for us. Starting at verse 15 of Luke 12, you've heard this passage before. It says uh, that Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all, contra- all, against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told the parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, This is an interesting conversation that he has. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night of yours is required. This night, your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's a lot of different ways that we can be prideful and self-sufficient, but let's be honest about one of the ones that is incredibly commonplace for all of us. Wherever you are on the material scale, you're, we, we've talked about this a number of times, we live in a time period in a place where the vast majority of it, I just saw a study of it recently, that if you make more than, what was it, $90 a day, if you make more than $90 a day, you are among 1% in the world. You're among 1% of the world. You control. The people who make more than $90 a day control one, the, uh, 50% of the world's wealth, but they're among 1% of, of the wealth. That's just, that's just amazing. So these parables remind us, one of the things that can go to our head is having resources, having the material things that we need, and it makes us feel like everything's at our disposal. We've got all control. We can manage life's problems with that. Okay, so Jesus is talking about these things. Well, what else happens with Nebuchadnezzar? He goes crazy. He does. In his particular situation, he just, he, they describe him, he essentially turns into an animal of some sort. And, and it's meant to reveal to him his need for God. But basically, God's just saying, I'm, I'm going to bring you to this low point to try to awaken you. And I, I like what Tim Keller says. Uh, you know, I, I've shared already that Earlier in this summer, after some of my cardiac issues and whatnot, I had never really had much struggles with any kind of uh, anxiety, certainly not at a level that would affect me in a physiological way that was really just a mental thing. And beginning to wrestle with some of that, and then over the years pastoring and working with different folks in the church that have different kind of mental struggles, it's a, it's a reminder uh, th- those things can come, and, and maybe the Lord's humbling, or maybe, the, maybe it's just a season that the Lord has a person in, or maybe it's a lifelong journey, but the Lord can meet us in the midst of that. And sometimes uh, folks that are struggling mentally realize their need more than a lot of the rest of us do. Because if you realize you can't even control the wheels that are going on up here, sometimes we're able to be uh, humbled in a way that, that other folks maybe, uh, maybe aren't. It's not that we enjoy those struggles, but those struggles can be a blessing. Well, what's God up to here? 
We've got just a few moments left. Anybody know what James 4.10 says? You probably do. You probably sung it when you were in, uh, if you ever went to VBS or went to uh, children's Sunday school or something. Remember that song? Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And what? He shall lift you up. He shall lift you up. What's God doing with Nebuchadnezzar? God's interest, even with this pagan king. Now think about how he is with his people and his loving correction of his people because this is with a pagan king. He wants to build him up. He wants to strengthen him by having Nebuchadnezzar realize that God is the most high and build his life and his kingdom around that instead of his own strength. But he brings him low. John 15 in the scriptures, we looked at it in our series earlier this summer, the I am's we we talked about, so we won't turn there, but it tells us that God prunes us, his people, cuts back the branches. Look in your worship guide at the sermon note section, at least for this uh, song. Uh, Patience and I heard this at the conference we were at to with the missionaries a few weeks ago. And I've shared it with a few in here, and I've listened to it a number of times. It's a, it's a brutally honest song. It's interesting, the author of this song, one of the most famous hymn writers, John Newton. Anybody else know what, what else John Newton wrote? Amazing Grace, pretty famous song. He wrote this song. And I'm not saying that this is applicable to everybody in everybody's situation, but, but listen to the words here. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Pretty good prayer, right? I mean, that's a good prayer. To want to know God, grow deeper with him. I like that prayer. That's a good one. Hopefully we're each praying that for ourselves and for one another. Read on. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair." What? God teaches me to pray that. I prayed the prayer, and it led me to despair. What's the story here? Read on. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. He wants a microwave, right? You and I do too. Microwave me. Give me one little hour. Catapult me forward spiritually, God. I'd love to have that. Give me a microwave spiritual explosion in my life. I'd love to have that. That's not what God's dialed up. Verse uh, stanza four. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. We looked at Job a couple of weeks ago. This is what God does sometimes. All he's got to do is pull back his protecting hand and this happens. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. He said, yeah, you've got ways that you're going to try to get even to this good thing of spiritual growth, but I'm going to thwart them. He laid them low. Where does this leave us? Well, John Newton's at the same place you and I would be. Sixth stanza. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt that pursue thy worm to death? Are we going to take this journey all the way to my death? "'Tis in this way the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith.'" He's saying, this is how I'm answering your prayer for spiritual growth. "'These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free 
and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst seek thy all in me. One of the things we're reminded of in these verses is a topic we've already covered at length this fall. What's God doing through our struggles? He's trying to draw us close to him. He's trying to help us grow spiritually, but it might not be the pathway we would think. But what should you and I be up to in response to all of this? Goodness, there's a a lot of things we, we could say about what we ought to be up to. One of the things that Tim Keller mentions that we see from this is that Daniel is being used. So we're going to shift now for just our last couple of moments. Let's shift from Nebuchadnezzar and let's look at what Daniel's teaching us. Daniel is being used in this pagan kingdom to proclaim these awesome realities of God's presence and God's power and to be able to see this king be humbled. And the only way we can do that is if we're people that are moved outside of our little holy huddle, right? Daniel was brought into this whole environment. He was just kind of thrown into it. You know, we know that God calls us and invites us to move out, to be sharers of the gospel message. And of course, Daniel's able to do this because of why? Why why does the king send for him? Because he's been a faithful worker for the king. He's done his job. He's learned the things he's supposed to learn. And of course, because God's working through him and the king knows that God's at work there. So you've got a pagan king saying, I want to hear from this believing individual. And the question for us is, is, you know, are we that kind of person in the circles that God's placed us in that maybe even those around us who know they don't know God, are looking at us and want to see what God's doing in our lives. Daniels seems to have been able to be that, that kind of person. There's a quote in your worship guide you can read on your own time, but I think is really helpful about that tendency we have to often be too brash and a little bit arrogant in how we speak truth to the culture and people get offended and turn away. Or conversely, We've been burned or we've been so intimidated by a godless culture that's, that's around us sometimes that we just keep silent. I just won't say anything. I'll just live out my little private Christian life. I won't speak about truth. You see it in the passage with Daniel, don't you? The king calls him in and Daniel does not want to say what he knows he needs to say. So if you and I are talking and preaching the gospel to people, it's going to involve saying some things, hopefully taking the log out of our own eye before we remove the speck from our brothers. But it's going to involve saying some tough things sometimes. God works through that. Last thing we see in these verses, which is really not in the text, but is brought forth when we place it in the scope of all of the scriptures. Who's the most exalted, most elevated king of the whole universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Who actually has all the power and all the might that we hear described in these verses? Jesus Christ does. And yet, how does Jesus use his power? He's invited by Satan in Matthew chapter 4 to take his power and use it for himself, use it for his own magnification, 
No, Jesus says, I'm going to take my power and I'm going to lay it down and assume the most humble of places. And through that, all of us can have power and knowledge that if we will trust God to lay down our self-exalted opinion of ourselves, humble ourselves, that he will lift us up as well. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Thank you for the ways that it challenges us and convicts 